All right. Acts chapter 18, verse 18 to 19, 22. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off in Centurae because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled place for place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the, instructed in the way of the Lord, and, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to go to Archaea, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Uh, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a, Jewish, high priest, a Jewish, priest, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to all the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear 
and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, where he, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Thanks, Gib. G'day, everyone. How are we? Good. Enthusiastic. <laughs> All right. The Bible is God's word, so as we start looking at it tonight, it would be good that we pray to God asking for his understanding. So we're going to start by doing that. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that as we look at it tonight, that we will understand it well and that we will put it into practice. We pray that we will live so that we honour you and your son Jesus in all we do. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Did you know that the vast majority of the countries in the world with the fastest growing evangelical Christian movements are also the countries facing some of the greatest opposition to the gospel. Countries like Nigeria, Iran, China and India are reported to have some of the fastest growing global evangelical movements. All these countries also sit near the top of the Open Doors World Watch List for countries with the most severe persecution against Christians. In parts of the world, where Christians are facing the most severe opposition and hindrance. The gospel is increasing greatly. But this is not a new phenomenon. Since the start of the Christian church, the same pattern has been evident. Where Christians have been faced with the most severe opposition, where there have been all sorts of hindrances to the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel has continued to increase and Jesus has continued to call people into his kingdom. Where there is opposition, however great, God continues to grow his kingdom as he empowers his people to boldly preach the gospel, regardless of the consequences they may face. In Acts so far, Christians have faced all sorts of potential hindrances to gospel increase. In today's passage, we'll see a whole variety of potential hindrances to the advance of the gospel, from people directly opposing the preaching of it, to people falsely calling on Jesus' name for their own means, to people thinking they know God, but being hindered from truly knowing him because of that. But we'll see that the increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. Whether it's the threat of death or imprisonment, or whether it's just being kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus will grow his kingdom. However great or small the threat is, Jesus will continue to fill his people with his spirit and cause the gospel to increase all throughout the world to his glory. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember that. We start our passage today with Paul wrapping up his second missionary journey. 
Last week, we saw some of the ministry that Paul was doing in Corinth, preaching the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles in the city. Today, we'll see how Paul concluded his second missionary journey as he went out from Corinth, reasoning with non-believers and strengthening the church. If you're following along on the sermon outlines on the back, we're up to point one now. Verse 18 says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centraea because of a vow he had taken. So, Paul remained at Corinth for a while, preaching the gospel before beginning his journey back to Syria, where he would soon greet his home church at Antioch. He was accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, two tent makers and believers in Jesus, who he'd worked with in Corinth to fund his ministry. And his first stop on his journey was at Centraea, the coastal city to the east of Corinth from which he would sail off from, but firstly he was going there for a haircut. Imagine having your haircut recorded in the Bible for millions of Christians over 2,000 years to read about. Noah, one of our resident night church members over here, lots of you would know that he's a barber at Oran Park, and he once told me about his most famous haircut story, the time where he cut Dustin Martin's hair, Dusty being one of the most exciting and successful AFL players to ever play. And I thought that was pretty awesome. Not that the haircut's the greatest around, but this haircut story takes a cake, big time. So, why include a haircut in this passage then? Well, the end of verse 18 says that Paul was under a vow. That vow was most likely a Nazarite vow, which we're taught about way back in Numbers chapter 6, that detailed some things that a Nazarite man or woman, who for a period of time had been dedicated to the Lord, would have to do. Part of this, from Numbers 6 verse 5, said, During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor must be used on, may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. When the period ended, they would then get a haircut and present themselves in Jerusalem for a short period of time for purification. Paul had likely taken this vow when he'd been sent out to his second missionary trip at Antioch. And now that he was finishing up his trip, and so ending this period of dedication to the Lord, it was time to go and get a haircut. This vow also, very importantly, showed Paul's commitment to seeing the gospel increase amongst the Jews as he showed himself to be a Jewish Christian. A Christian who still valued Jewish traditions but served Jesus as Lord. So Paul got his haircut and then in verse 19, he came to Ephesus. We read from verse 19 that they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Ephesus was an area in the world that was booming as a major global commercial centre 
and as a culturally rich and religiously diverse city. So Paul came to Ephesus, where he parted with Priscilla and Aquila, who had likely come there to grow their tent-making business, and he went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews. Paul saw it as a priority to continue seeing the gospel increase amongst the Jews. So he came first to the Jews in Ephesus before he went to the Gentiles. This raises the question, though. Did Paul not say earlier in chapter 18 that he would only go to the Gentiles now? Why then is he back preaching to the Jews only a few verses later? Well, Romans 11 tells us that Paul's heart desire was still for his fellow Jews to know Christ. And when given the opportunity, he couldn't help himself but preaching to the Jews. Even in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, he still hoped that it would lead to the salvation of the, his fellow Jews. Paul saw evangelism to the Jews as a priority, so he began his ministry in Ephesus, reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. But Paul didn't stay for long, for Ephesus was just a stop on his way through to finish his second mission trip. He did eventually return to Ephesus, as we'll see later in our passage, and God used him to advance the gospel there despite hindrance. But for now, it was time to head off. It's interesting what he said as he was leaving. He said, I will come back if it is God's will. It's hard to go wrong if that's how you operate. Paul spent some time reasoning with the Jews at Ephesus, but now it was time for him to complete his haircut vow. So off to Jerusalem he went. We read in verses 22 and 23, when he landed at Caesarea, oh, yep, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. As a continued commitment to Jewish evangelism, Paul completed his vow, going to Jerusalem, where Jews who had taken this Nazarite vow had to come for a time of purification at the end of their dedication to the Lord. He greeted the church at Jerusalem, presumably strengthening them while he was there, before going back to his home church at Antioch and spending some time with them. We finish this section with Paul leaving Antioch, probably after around a year and a half of being there, and beginning another missionary journey by strengthening the disciples he encountered along the way throughout Galatia and Phrygia. We've seen so far that Paul's priorities are reasoning, that is, attempting to persuade people of the truth of the gospel, and strengthening those who already know Jesus, that they may keep following him. These are two priorities that we must have, strengthening and reasoning. We make the Sunday church gathering and midweek Bible studies a priority because these are times where we can strengthen each other as fellow believers. And we need to make reasoning, or what we might call evangelism, a priority as well, so that we can see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth for Jesus' glory. We're now up to point two on our sermon outline, if you're following along there. Point two, John's baptism is not sufficient. So while Paul was out strengthening Christians on his way back to Ephesus, 
we meet a man named Apollos. Verses 24 to 26 say, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Apollos was a Jew who knew the scriptures well, who'd been baptised by John the Baptist, the man who paved the way for Jesus' coming, and who clearly had an idea of who Jesus was. He'd recognised that John's baptism was pointing to Jesus, for he spoke not of John, but of Jesus. And he even spoke of Jesus accurately. However, it seems that he didn't truly know the gospel and didn't truly know Jesus. For in the second half of verse 26, we see that Priscilla and Aquila, who had remained in Ephesus, had to invite him back to their house so that they could give him a complete explanation of the gospel. Apollos may have known of Jesus and even recognised Jesus as the fulfilment of John's baptism, but for whatever reason, he hadn't grasped the reality that Jesus had died and been buried, that he'd been raised to life and ascended into heaven, and that that meant that he was the Messiah, God's anointed king who would save his people. He was hindered from truly knowing Jesus up to this point by his inadequate knowledge of the saving work of Jesus. John's baptism alone was not enough for his salvation. But as a true follower of John, when he heard the gospel explained to him, he turned and followed Jesus. True followers of John the Baptist would become true followers of Jesus when the gospel was presented to them even if John's baptism seemed to hinder them from knowing Jesus. And we see the outworking of this in verses 27 and 28, which say, When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos had already shown an eagerness for and boldness in preaching the gospel, so he was sent out to keep preaching the gospel throughout the world now that he knew the true gospel. And what a simple but wonderful message he preached, that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the same message we see at the start of the Gospel of Mark, the same message that Jesus' first followers preached everywhere around them, and the same message that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, who we know turned out to be Jesus. Jesus' mission to the world in increasing the gospel cannot be hindered. He will save whoever he chooses, whether that's people who think they already know him, but are yet to truly know him, or people who have no desire to know him at all, or anyone in between. We see this again soon after. When Paul had arrived in Ephesus, and Apollos had now journeyed out into the world, Paul arrives at Ephesus and meets some men who have also been baptised by John, 
and who are described as disciples of some sort. Verses 1 to 3 say, when they come up, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul meets these men, 12 of them according to verse 7, who he assumed to have believed, but who very quickly showed that they were not believers in Jesus, for they hadn't received the Holy Spirit or even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We often have a tendency to devalue the Holy Spirit or to even forget about him. We tend to chuck him on the side of the Godhead alongside the Father and the Son as the third person in the Godhead Trinity. But the Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of God, the inmost being of who God is. He's necessary for salvation. And as we see with these men who clearly haven't been saved, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. And he's necessary for our ongoing sanctification. That is our continual growth in godliness. So when Paul sees that these men have not received the Holy Spirit, alarm bells start ringing in his head. He asks them what baptism they've received, and they've only received John's baptism, a baptism that pointed to the coming Messiah, but not one that alone was sufficient for salvation. So Paul told them what they needed to hear, starting from verse 4. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. Just like we saw with Apollos, John's baptism was not sufficient for salvation, and in fact, it was meant to lead John's disciples to eventually becoming Jesus' disciples. It was a baptism of repentance that was meant to culminate in people believing in Jesus, being baptised in his name, and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It was maybe a good start, but it wasn't sufficient for salvation. Therefore, it proved to be a hindrance to these 12 men knowing Jesus. But as we're seeing today, the increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. And he did just that. When Paul told these men the true gospel, as true followers of John the Baptist, they repented, believed, and became true followers of Jesus, who were now indwelt by his spirit. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied, which, of course, we know are necessary parts of salvation. Except they aren't. So, why include this detail in this story, then? Well, in this case, it seems that the speaking in tongues and prophesying were crucial indicators for these men, who had previously only been baptised by John, that now they had been baptised in the name of Jesus and had his Holy Spirit dwelling in them the Holy Spirit that Paul had told them of. A similar thing happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised to them just days before. And they spoke in tongues, beginning the global proclamation of the gospel. 
Speaking in tongues and prophesying seemed to be important indicators for these particular people of their salvation and receiving of the Holy Spirit. But it is not a necessity for salvation. This section is descriptive, not prescriptive. It described what these particular people needed at that time, what happened to these particular people, but it does not prescribe what must happen to all people to be saved. And as we see in many other parts of Acts, people are saved and most certainly don't speak in tongues. We come now to our third and final section, point three on your sermon outlines if you're following along. And in this third and final section, we'll see the gospel continuing to increase despite a range of hindrances, including opposition and magicians using Jesus' name like a spell. Verses 8 to 10 say, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Paul returns to the synagogue in Ephesus and begins trying to reason with people, to persuade people, just like he had been doing back in chapter 18. But he eventually encountered opposition from people there who tried to speak badly of Christianity. And instead of arguing with the people, he just said, yeah, nah, and moved on elsewhere where he could see the gospel increase without having to bother with the people who were having a go at him. So he went to the hall of Tyrannus, which means tyrant. Imagine naming your kid Tyrant. Good baby name for our future parents here. And he continued to preach to the point that all Jews and Greeks throughout Asia had heard of Jesus. A bit of Jewish opposition to the gospel wasn't enough to hinder Jesus from continuing to make his gospel known through his servant Paul all throughout the world. And then, to keep things interesting, Paul started throwing some miracles in there, just sprinkling them in. Of course, we know it's actually the Holy Spirit who was causing these miracles, but the magicians didn't know that. Verses 11 and 12 say, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Even the cloths that Paul blew his snotty nose on would go out and heal people who touched them. God, by his Holy Spirit, was empowering Paul to perform these miracles so that the gospel would continue to advance. As we see in the next few verses, when some of the exorcists turn up trying to use the same tricks that Paul had been using to remove evil spirits from people. Verses 13 to 16 say... Some Jews went around, driving out ev- went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. 
He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It almost seems like a comical story. Some Jewish exorcists, including these seven sons of the chief priest, Sceva, decided that if Paul could use Jesus' name to cast out evil spirits, surely they could too. So they started going around trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, like saying his name was some sort of magic trick that would bring the demons out. Abracadabra, Expelliarmus, but Jesus' name isn't a magic trick. Paul wasn't able to cast out the evil spirits because he was saying Jesus' name with enough gusto. What the sons of Sceva didn't know was that Paul actually had Jesus dwelling inside him. Jesus was using Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons to heal people so that the name of Jesus might be known and the gospel may increase. And that's exactly what happened. The sons of Sceva kept trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name with no luck. And eventually one of the demons decided to bash up the lot of them and leave them naked and bleeding, running out into the street for help, exposed for the frauds they truly were. But even with this craziness seeming to potentially cause a hindrance to gospel increase, Jesus' mission to advance the gospel couldn't be stopped. And in fact, he used the beating of the sons of Sceva for the purpose of gospel increase. Verses 17 to 20 say, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Paul's healing of people with handkerchiefs in Jesus' name and the subsequent beating of those who used Jesus' name falsely led to gospel increase. People were seized with fear when they saw that Jesus' name has power, both to cause healing and to cause harm. People believed and repented of their sins, burning what was probably millions of dollars worth of magical scrolls because they saw that the power of Jesus was greater than any other power. God didn't just overcome this potential hindrance to the gospel, but in fact, he ordained this hindrance so that the gospel would increase even more greatly. God even has control over the evil spirits who recognised Jesus and Paul, but did not recognise the sons of Sceva. When Jesus chooses to save, it doesn't matter what worldly things get in the way, for he has power over all of them and will complete his saving work regardless of human factors. We end this passage with Paul continuing on in verses 21 and 22, planning to continue his global journey of gospel proclamation and even sending some helpers ahead of him to begin preaching in some of the places that he would later visit for the sake of Jesus' glory. We've seen today that gospel increase cannot be stopped, for Jesus will continue to advance the gospel as he chooses, no matter the circumstances. We've seen a range of hindrances that could have gotten in the way of gospel increase, but we've seen that God is more powerful than any hindrance the world can even try to throw at him. So, how does this apply to us now? 
Here's some final implications. Number one, continue evangelizing. Don't stop telling people the glorious news that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul didn't care what people thought about him. Paul didn't care when people didn't want him in the synagogue. He just went elsewhere. We have such a limited time on earth, maybe 70, 80, 90 years if we're lucky. Nothing else we do on this earth matters to the eternity that comes after that. The friends we keep because we weren't bold enough in preaching the gospel to them, the money we earn by willingly doing things that we know aren't godly, when right there we have the opportunity to tell people that Jesus is more important to us. None of that comes with us once we die. So we need to stop valuing these things over preaching the gospel message that we know the whole world needs to hear if they are to be saved. Be encouraged that our feeble attempts at evangelism are well and truly enough for Jesus to save people if he chooses. Implication two, pray. If Jesus alone can save people, pray that he will. The Good News team, as we heard before, had their first meeting the other night and launched these nifty little cards. Use them. Commit to praying for gospel advance. I need to use these as much as anyone. My prayerlessness is abhorrent. Keep praying that Jesus will save. Our third and final implication. Make church, make Bible study, make anything that contributes to the strengthening of Jesus' church a priority. Paul saw that evangelism shouldn't be his only priority. It's a crucial priority, but it's not the only one. Paul committed to travelling throughout the world to churches that were already established to strengthen them. He knew that the growth in godliness, the ongoing sanctification of those who already knew Jesus as Lord, was and still is a necessity. We bring God glory not only in our evangelism to the lost, but also in our spiritual growth and in the growth, the spiritual growth of others around us. Make that a priority. The increase of the gospel cannot be hindered, for Jesus will grow his kingdom despite hindrances. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you will grow your kingdom, that we have certainty of that. We thank you that you've called us through your son Jesus into your kingdom. We pray that as people who are saved, that we will go out willingly trying to tell others about the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. We pray that we will be working at strengthening each other. We pray that you will be helping us in learning to pray more, that we may honour Jesus in everything we do. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.